Hi, I'm Ari Lewis, the host of Mastering the Attention Economy podcast presented by Brand Street. Each week, I interview founders, operators, and creators to learn how they're earning attention for their brand without paying for it. If you want to learn more about Brand Street, visit brandstreet.co. Brand Street is a community of operators building brands through creative, unpaid marketing and media. If you use the code LEWIS, L-E-W-I-S, you'll receive 20% off a yearly subscription to the community. This week's guest is Robbie Crabtree. Robbie is a trial attorney and a public speaking expert. Robbie is the founder of Performative Speaking, a program that teaches you to be a better speaker. It was recently acquired by OnDeck. In this episode, we discuss launching a paid course, how using Twitter helped him build brand authority, and how to be a better speaker. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hey Ari, I really appreciate you be, appreciate you having me on here today. I'm excited to talk about all this stuff. So, you know, I want to jump into things as per the usual. You know, obviously you're one of the the foremost experts on speaking now, but you know, your your start in your career, you started as a trial attorney which you you know, you still do, but you started in the DA's office. So, I actually wanted to ask you you know, how much is, you know, working in the DA's office? Was that like Law and Order SVU or like Mind Hunters, like these TV shows we see in real life? Or is it like all made up and it's much more boring than what they're showing on television? Yeah. So the fun thing is, it is a lot like those shows. It's kind of a blend of all of them. So like specifically, I was a child abuse prosecutor for the last year of my career at the DA's office. And that was very, very similar to Law and Order SVU mind hunters. And I use that example because we were actually trained by the psychologists and the people who were in that behavioral science unit at the FBI at some of the trainings we went through. And then there's also a lot of like suits and just negotiating and being super confident and comfortable in there. And it's amazing how similar it is, but most of the time it's super boring. Like you're prepping for years and then you have this big trial moment that is basically all SVU focuses on, which is very similar and in fact, one of my best friends from college was a DA in New York, in Manhattan. And he said on his first day, he walks in to go to his job and they're actually there filming Law & Order SVU. And I was just like, that's unbelievable that the real world and this fictional world are crossing like that. So when you started you know, your career as a lawyer, did you always anticipate like staying in law or were you planning to you know, sort of go down the speaking path of taking some of you know, your lessons that you're learning from a lawyer and now sort of, you know, pivoting, even though you're, you're still a lawyer into, into this new, you know, found expertise. So there's lawyers and then there's trial lawyers and trial lawyers are a very small subset of your everyday lawyer, right? Most of them are dealing with business or transactions, contracts, things that are going on that you never have to step into a courtroom. So being a trial lawyer is very different and it's also incredibly high stakes, high stress, but you're building a skill set that's really unique in terms of your ability to persuade people, playing chess, playing that strategy game, you're playing game theory, you're using human psychology, you're, you're building all these pieces and these skills, which is really fun because at a certain point, you're just like, all right, I've tried everything that I ever wanna try, right? Like, I mean, I've tried cases, murders and capital murders and child abuse cases. I've defended them on the other side. Like I've won them as a prosecutor, I've won them as a defense attorney. And you get to a point where you're just like, all right, I can keep doing the same thing over and over and over. But being a trial lawyer is all about minimizing risk. You're trying to make sure the worst thing doesn't happen. You're very rarely ever going to get the best outcome because in any sort of trial, everyone loses. No one is there to see like a good thing happen. Even if you win, it's been years to get to that point. Something terrible happened to you. 
if it's civil, same thing. Like there's been a fight, there's been problems, you're having to pay money. So it's never a good situation. And I always said, I want to be able to get into a world where I can maximize rewards. I want to help people like go for like the highest, the best outcome. And that can't be done in the trial world. And granted, I still love being a trial lawyer and will continue to handle one or two cases a year. But for the most part, really what I want to get into and what I have been getting into, and you've seen it, is more of this speaking world, helping founders, helping people really explain their messaging, not only from like a, let's say less ums and, and likes and those filler words, but also let's be strategic because there's a difference between sounding like a great speaker and actually being a great speaker. And now that you've said that, I have to make sure that I don't say the word um and like for the rest of the conversation. But, um, you know, I guess to, to, to follow up on that, when you started this speaking process, you know, were you always a, a great speaker? Is this something you learned as a trial attorney? Like, you know, now you're working with tons of people. Are people born into being great speakers and they could be refined more? Or are some people terrible? Like, you know, I always think of the, uh, the movie about uh, uh, King Edward, um, which I'm drawing a blank on, you know, where he... The, the King's Speech. The King's Speech, yes. And he went from like not, you know, had a stutter to he could now speak. You know, what, what, what is the process like for most people trying to, to become a great speaker? All right. So there's a couple things to answer there. So first off, I was always a good speaker, but I improved dramatically over my career. And that was just from the intentionality and the amount of time and effort and study that I was putting into it. So you can improve. In terms of everyone, there's really kind of two camps. Some people have the natural talent, right? Just like a professional baseball player, professional basketball player has to have natural talent. And then they get better as they practice and put in the time and effort. It's very similar. There are some people who are just born with that innate talent that can be great speakers. And with the proper work, they can really become elite speakers. Now, some people are not born with that natural talent. That does not mean that they can't improve. I think everybody can get to a level of competency. Like they can be good speakers, but they may never be a great or an elite speaker. And so there are kind of two different camps and you've got to be able to identify that when you're working with them and say, okay, who are we dealing with here? Do you have the skills to go from good to great to elite? Or is it just, hey, we're trying to improve you so that you are good and you have that just core competency that we need when it comes to speaking? So, you know, I have, a, I have a lot of questions about, you know, your speaking process and your course and stuff, but I want to take a step back and talk about, you know, so when did you begin this journey of starting on Twitter and starting to build out your, you know, authentic authority as a, a speaking expert, you know, was it this aha moment? Cause I, I know a lot of people listening, whether it's an individual creator or they're at a company, they're struggling to find their niche. And maybe from the surface, it appears really easy how you found yours, but it's probably not the case. Like, can you just talk about sort of how you ended up choosing this? And then also how you've thought about becoming an authority and building your, your authority in the space? Sure. So that takes us back a little bit as to how I realized there was a way to pivot and really use these skills to help other people. And that started with when SMU Law School had me come on and start teaching persuasive speaking and coaching the national mock trial team. So that happened after I was an attorney for five years. I started working with them. And that's really where I got to test a lot of these ideas out and see, can I translate the things that are working for me and teach other people? And are they finding success? And so I did that the first year and they were successful. So I said, let's try it again the second year, make sure I can validate and do the same thing, make sure it's repeatable. Second year, 
again, even better success to the point that my students swept all the speaking awards at SMU Law School that year. I'm in my third year doing it now, but that was really that aha moment of, hey, after that second year, I was like, I'm onto something. I can do this. There's real value. Other people can learn through my methodology. So then we'll fast forward to Twitter because that's an important, important point to get to. I've been on Twitter since 2011, but never really used it for any real purpose, right? I did the normal check news, use it as a journal, talk about sports, but nothing exciting. I mean, like if I look at my analytics in January of this year, it's, it's absurd. Like I was losing followers and I was at 150 or so. But when COVID hit, I really moved into this more online world. And I started following people like Jack Butchers, David Perels, Matthew Kobach. And I actually watched the seminar, How to Crush on Twitter with Matthew Kobach and David Perel. And that was the first moment I said, oh, okay, this is how you do this thing. I'm a lawyer and I don't like to reinvent the wheel. So if I see somebody has found a recipe for success and tells me this is how you do it, I'm just gonna implement it. And that's really what I did. And I said, I know the topics I can talk about. It's being a trial lawyer, it's public speaking and kind of everything that's wrapped into that communication and persuasive speaking. And then the third thing, which is kind of like the unique thing for me is the like pop culture lens. So like when you were trying to find the King speech, I was like, no, I know that one exactly. That's super easy for me to, to pull from. And so I started just talking about them and tweeting and following the formula, right? Tweet a lot, talk about them, stay on topic, stay on topic, stay on topic, right? It's kind of like that scene from Star Wars where they just keep saying, stay on target, stay on target, stay on target. And that's kind of what was happening. And you just start talking about it. You're, you're writing articles about it. You're creating video content about it. And you're talking to anybody who's interested. And I think that's really how you build the authority actually is just giving away a ton of free value and building these relationships and letting people see your expertise in action. And when they start seeing that, it's like, oh, okay, this guy really knows what he's talking about. And probably the biggest moment for me was in Rite of Passage, David Perel's course, where on the second to last night, he does a thing called the personal monopoly hot seat, where he pu pulls a student up and they kind of talk about their personal monopoly and normally questions are asked. I was a person that did that, except when I did it, it was an opportunity for me to basically showcase my skill set of speaking, putting together kind of a speech, a talk, whatever you want to call it. And then people were able to actually see the expertise. And that was that moment where all the light bulbs really went off and kind of led to this journey of create a course become this authority and really start diving full, full into this. That's a, that's a great answer. And there's so much to unpack there. You know, you talked about, you took this, how to crush Twitter course. Did you ended up just choosing Twitter because, you know, you saw that course and that was, or you saw that speech and, and that was it. And I was like, I'm decided because I know before we, we were straight hit record, we talked about TikTok and how you have a couple um, students, one who has 1.5 million followers in three months. You know, it, it, it seems like, and I've now started doing this where TikTok is this just blue ocean. You know, have you thought about going into other areas besides, you know, Twitter? So now like I'm branching out, right? So now I'm doing more of the YouTube stuff. I'm doing some LinkedIn because I need to be there too. I'm doing some Instagram, but for the most part, Twitter is still my main platform, which is odd. And I mean, I also write on my own website, but Twitter's my main platform when it comes to social media. And I say that be, because that's where I find the most interesting people. And so I actually chose Twitter, not necessarily in terms of building an audience, but more in terms of the connections that it, it brought to me. Where like I was meeting really interesting people like yourself, 
Like I met, you know, Alex from Alex and Books. I meet Brandon Zhang. I meet Justin Mikaloy, who you had on, on this this podcast, and start talking to him. And like, I don't know if people realize how cool it is to talk to Justin Mikaloy, but he was a speechwriter for General Mattis, General Petraeus. Like that is such high level speech writing, such high stakes. Every word that he was writing to get to connect to somebody like that. So I do some speech writing at a lower level for politicians here locally in Dallas, like getting to have that conversation with him. And this will go back into a little bit of pop culture. My favorite show of all time is the West Wing. And so Justin basically was like living in the West Wing and doing the stuff that I'm like, I want to be those people someday. So for me, Twitter was this place where I got to build real connections with really interesting people. Like I got to meet Clay Ebert, who has like this super interesting idea on the perfect intro, who's in the speaking world. And just the value of these connections in this network and who I was meeting, that's what it was so interesting to, to find on Twitter, less about building the audience, more about building a real network of incredible people who are in this creator economy, who are doing really cool ideas ideas and had kind of this founder mentality behind them. Yeah, that's that's a great answer and and something that I've also benefited on Twitter of just meeting people that, you know, I never would have met in real life and it's also my excuse to have a podcast as well where, you know, instead of asking to uh take someone out for coffee, you say, "Hey, you want to jump on my podcast?" and then, you know, instead of us just having conversation, there's a few hundred other people listening. So, it's a really great power of Twitter and, you know, for anyone who's thinking about using Twitter, I think we're firsthand um, proof that it is a great way to to gain authority and quite frankly make money on it <laughs> so um you know with with all that being said um you know let's go into sort of like what you're doing now with you know at what point did you get, realize oh i'm like a bit of an authority you know i have some twitter followers i should monetize this and, and start a course was there like an aha moment where people were asking you to speak or come on podcasts or were you just like you know what I'm going to do it, see what the hell happens. If it fails, well, I could just do something new. So luckily for me, that happened in Rite of Passage. People were reaching out to me and saying, Robbie, make a course like Rite of Passage, but for speaking. And that was essentially what I did is I created a email signup list on a card page. Like I created quickly said, hey, here's what I'm thinking. It'll be this number of weeks, this price point. Here's the, the general idea. Only sign up if you're serious. And I launched that and within 48 hours, I think I had something like, 38, 39, 40 people signed up for it. And they were all from Rite of Passage. So I said, okay, I've got something here. I started to create. And that's actually what led me to, to start the performative speaking course was I had people telling me they would sign up. Now, I never expected all 40 people were gonna sign up. Like we're all realists. We know just because someone says they're going to doesn't mean that they're going to. So I was counting on hitting, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of a quarter to half of those signing up because they were super invested in, in me, the idea. And they were also coming from this world of an online course, right? So they had already basically been pre-qualified to say they'll sign up for a course, they'll sign up at this price point, and they'll be engaged. So that's when I started building. That led me to really just building in public, right? And embracing this idea on Twitter of like showing the progress as I'm going through it, the good, the bad, the ugly, all of that. And ultimately when I launched, I launched early to that that list. And I said, if I don't hit 10 people signed up in the first 72 hours, I'm shutting it down and I'm just not gonna run it because it wouldn't have made sense for me to essentially walk away from my legal practice in order to do this. But within those first 72 hours, I mean, to be completely honest, I got two signups within like five minutes. 
It felt great. And I'm like, all right, we're on. Everyone's I, all of a sudden I went like, everyone's going to sign up. This is going to go bananas. I'm going to be onto something that is just like revolutionary. And then it just went dry. Just nobody else signed up for, I don't know, like 24 hours. And I'm just like, oh God, I made a terrible mistake. Somehow I really connected with these two people, but nobody else. But then it, it picked up. And by the end of the 72 hours, I had 14 people that had signed up. And I said, all right, we're onto something. I launched it to the public. Ultimately, we ended up with like 35 people in the first cohort, saw a ton of good stuff. It's an incredible experience. It's exhausting, but man, it's so much fun seeing people really change and get better and improve and just put in the time and build a community. And you know this, like you're building Brand Street. Building a community is just an incredible experience. And you know, how does that, talking about positioning there and, and literally branding, you know, one of the things that I've, I've seen sort of happens, a lot of people talk courses or paid newsletters, and I've been a big believer of sort of like rejecting those types of words. And you don't, you know, you don't want to say I run a paid news. I want, I run a paid community or not a paid course. It's a paid community because I think community is a moat. You know, how did you think about positioning and branding in that sense? Were you like, oh, you know, it's a course or you're like, no, this is more than a course. And did people really buy into that concept? Because th that's the other, you know, side of the equation of like, there's all these buzzwords being thrown around on Twitter and on social media. And it's like, you know, is this really this, or is it like that little, you know, we say it is, but it isn't. Yeah. So I was very intentional in branding this as yes, it's a course, but it is the community that you're really coming for. And I was fortunate to work a lot with Andrew Berry, who's been talking about this a lot kind of in the Twitter space about community and how you foster it and having this idea of a destination leader, a journey leader, and then your students. And so I really worked a lot with him. I worked with other people as well. Again, I worked with like Clay Bear and Justin Mickeloy to get their counsel. I was able to talk to David Perel and Jack Butcher on how they were thinking about these things. And it just really showed me the value in community. And I had to focus on that. And I had seen it in Rite of Passage myself, which meant I understood how to to take that and implement it in my own program. And so I did a lot of similar things, right? Like I created a real emphasis on showing up to the live classes and making sure screens are on. I really focused on putting people in the same breakout room and breakout group for the entire week so they could build that connection. And then there's assignments and really pushing people to give feedback and really invest in one another. And then one of the best things we did at the end of the course is created this a capstone project where everyone did a live speech in front of each other. And you want to talk about a community builder when everyone is watching you deliver a speech and you just see like the chat blowing up with all this positivity and comments supporting one another. Like that's, that's how you build community. And if you do it right the first time, those first people are going to be the ones who talk about it in the future and say, this community is amazing. Like you're going to love everything about this. So like, I mean, I was adding stuff throughout the course office hours. I was adding in, I brought my law partner on to help out because I was like, I want to make sure everyone gets everything they need. I was running CrossFit for speaking and I had the plan to do it twice. I ended up doing it three times. The plan was to do an hour session for those. I ended up doing two hour sessions and was just staying around and really kind of trying to foster it as best as I could because I knew that power of community and I knew what that could do for the brand. That makes it much more than a course. That's, hey, show up for the course to learn these skills but stay for the community because that's what's going to actually lead to the transformation. And that's, what's going to lead to the long-term network building 
of like your closest friends that when COVID's over, you're going to be able to travel throughout the US or throughout the world and hit up one of those friends and say, hey, I'm in Colorado today. You're in Denver. You want to hang out and grab some coffee or talk about this idea? And all of a sudden, you've you've got this really beautiful flow going on. So, you know, I think that brings us to the, the next question and was actually a question asked by uh, the audience, which was, you know, now that you finished the first cohort, how are you thinking about both marketing the second cohort, but also like you talked about community, how do you make sure that the first cohort, if you choose, you know, stays engaged? Is that like a free thing where you have a alumni community? Is it paid? And, you know, then again, thinking about that next cohort of how are you marketing that? How are you getting people to join? So it's a great question. And I think that that's the one that will keep most course creators up at night because here's the truth. You want it to be like this. You run a great first cohort. Everyone sees incredible results. The hype is real. And you think people are just going to like walk in and start signing up and say, man, I saw all this great stuff and you're showing me all these great results. I'm in. That doesn't happen. Like maybe it does for like a David Perel who has 125,000 followers on Twitter and is now in cohort six. But for a cohort two, that is just not the reality. So you've got to be thinking about this. And in terms of keeping the community engaged, I'll answer that one first and answer the, the marketing. So I did set up a free alumni Slack group so that they can stay engaged. The other thing that I, I decided is I did not give lifetime access to future cohorts. I gave lifetime access to the materials from, from their cohort. But what I did do is I gave them access to attend any CrossFit for speakings that we run on Saturdays because it's not teaching, it's just creating in future cohorts. So they can continue to come back and be involved in the community, not have to pay anything to do that. And like the new cohorts, will get to see old co cohort members coming back and seeing where they're at, seeing them create, getting feedback from one another and building this bigger and bigger community. So it's kind of like a, a blend of, they're getting to come back a little bit into future cohorts, but not all the way. And it kind of ramps up this, this hype cycle in a way that way they're excited when a new cohort comes because they get to come back and do stuff that isn't running when we're in between. The, the second piece, the marketing piece, man, that, that is definitely the struggle, right? Like that's, that's hard. And what you're trying to do there is you're trying to build relationships with other creators to potentially like pitch your ideas and their, their courses and be like, Hey, this is a great one to work with. So for instance, like I, I ended up working with Ali Abdal in his part-time YouTube Academy. I ran a couple workshops in there. We kind of are talking with one another about how we can help each other out because we think there's a, a real kind of synergy between our programs, right? You want to be good on YouTube. Well, you need to be a better speaker. If you want to like be a, a better speaker, like it's good to get on YouTube and start practicing these skills. They work really nicely together. So you start trying to find those partnerships. You also just have to continue to give away free, like free value. And right now I'm in the middle of running a 21 day email series. It'll end up being something like 25,000 words that I just put together on all these topics that's entirely free for people to read. And I mean, they're, they're real topics. Like you can take action from every single one of those emails and become a better speaker. But the hope is that by doing that, people will see the value you're providing. And you're essentially walking them through this journey and saying like, I have a lot to offer you. And this is a good amount of it, but there's so much more. And it's even more powerful. And again, this will go back to community. 
when you come into the community and you're getting feedback and you're working with one another and you have this accountability group that's on you and you're seeing other ideas and you're seeing how they implement a pitch, how they implement an interview, how they implement uh, just a persuasive speech. And so you try to say, look, you've gotten all this value from me. I'm more than happy to give it to you. If you want more, there is kind of a gate up that you now need to pay to come into. And that's really how I think of marketing it is just continuing to show subject matter expertise, show that I, I have this knowledge that I can pare it down and translate it to digestible form for other people and say, if you really want to up these skills, you have all this information, but the best way is through practice by getting these breakout rooms, by getting feedback, and really by getting this community. So, you know, my, my last uh, question for you is, how do you think about like differentiation? Because one of the things that I think is a common question within Brand Street, our, our, our community, but also with people I t talk to, people on Twitter, and one of just the big theories that I have is that like, you know, a lot of things are commoditized, right? Even speaking in some art, some ways like i can google like how do i speak better watch a free youtube video even get a book that's like 10 bucks while your course is in the thousands but people are still paying for it you know how do you think about positioning and differentiation there is it you know rely on you or is it more than you you know what is that differentiator that makes it sit in its own category where people buy into it so there's a couple things one is my background as a trial lawyer that is that in and of itself is a differentiator because very few people teaching speaking come from that background who have been in these super high stake moments and have done informal, formal, have done like in the spur of the moment versus very prepared. It's just not a skill set many people have. And it's also the skill set of the strategy pieces and really playing out this chess game that takes years and then this rapid chess game that happens when you're in the courtroom and actually trying the case. So first off, that's one differentiator. I focus a lot on strategy, a lot of on mindset and a lot on how we deal with some of the big hurdles that people have when it comes to speaking in kind of a, a, a unique way. Like when it comes to nerves, like I, I don't I just completely say it's not nerves, it's energy. And you're just, you're deciding that it's nerves. You're giving it a name. So a lot of people say, well, I'm nervous when I speak. And I'd really push back on that. Or a lot of people say you should be vulnerable when you talk to an audience and you should do that by admitting, like if you're nervous, say, hey, I'm, I'm nervous. Or if something goes wrong, you should say, yeah, I just put this together five minutes ago. I push back on that whole idea. You should not do that. So some of it is just from my perspective, like I'm very strong in the stance that I take on the things I believe because I've seen it. I've gotten feedback from thousands of jurors, judges, really polished, excellent speakers. So that's one way. The second way is being a teacher at SMU, has really helped me figure out how to translate these skills in a way that students can actually appreciate and that they can actually implement. A lot of people can give you tips for being a better speaker, but they don't know how to actually teach a person how to do that. They don't know how to distill it down into the language of their student or to give them the way to put this into action. And that's, that is very hard to find when it comes to the public speaking world. And especially when you're talking about these different groups, like we said earlier, there's different groups that we're dealing with, right? The ones who are can go from okay to good, and there's the ones who can go from good to great and from great to elite. And then there's also different industries. You've got to be able to walk in all these industries and say, oh, you're a VC, I can help you when you're pitching to your partners. You're a founder, I can help you pitch to investors, but I can also help you sell to employees. I can also help you find your ideal customer. Or you want to get up on stage and give a big 10,000 person speech, I can help you do that. 
because I've been in all those situations. And part of being a lawyer is you're essentially thrown a problem. And what they teach you in law school is go figure it out. And I'm sure it's not different than a, a lot of, you know, like a consultant or something like that. But the big thing you're taught in law school is not the law. Like you don't walk out of there and say, I know the law. You're taught how to think and how to figure out what the problem is, analyze it and come up with a solution by researching it, reading, finding the answers and using your own skill set to do that in the best way possible. So that really helps in this world of speaking because everyone's coming at it from a different perspective, a different place. A one size fit all book or a one size fits all YouTube video may help you, Ari, but it may not. It may help the person who's listening to this, but it may not because it may not apply to them. And that's where it's different when you actually have somebody who's kind of been in the trenches and really gone through all of these different circumstances say, yeah, I can help you do that. And I can help you do that. And I can help you do that. It doesn't matter what it is. I can find a way to help you. So, you know, I always ask this as my final question. So what is one takeaway that the audience should, you know, know from, you know, you starting this uh, new career as a, speaking expert and speaking, you know, professional with your, with your courses. I think one thing for people to understand is it looks like it happened overnight, but it took a decade to set up. And I think sometimes people on Twitter and in this online space see creators who it feels like they just are an overnight success. And what I want people to take away is one, it's not an overnight success. What you're doing is you're preparing for years, preparing for years so that you're ready. And when the opportunity comes, then you've got to be able to execute with just absolute ruthless efficiency and with just like the speed, just absolute violence when it comes to the speed that you're approaching the the opportunity with. And so it's like this slow, 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 slow opportunity, incredibly fast. And so it's really these two pieces. So it may look like things happen overnight and you've got to be ready to make it happen overnight. But it's because of all the years of preparation you've been doing before to get there. And so I just don't want people to to be frustrated as a creator if it feels like it's taking too long because you've got to put those those plans and those steps in place. But I also don't want you saying, hey, I'm just going to keep waiting. Another opportunity will show up because the truth is it may not. If you see the opportunity, you've got to jump on it. You've got to move and you've got to make the most of it. Well, Robbie, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Um, for those who you know want to join your course or follow you on social media, where can they uh, find you? Sure. Best place to find me is on Twitter. And my Twitter handle is just at Robbie Crab. My DMs are open. You can always chat with me. That's really the best way to get any information. My website for the course is on my bio on Twitter. You can also check out my personal website, which is RobbieCrabtree.com. I write on there that has some information for the course as well. There's also the free email course that I talked about that is also on my bio in Twitter. And that really is the best way to reach me. If you want to email me, you of course can. That's just Robbie at RobbieCrab.com. And I'm always open to talk to anybody, help anybody, do whatever I can to try to try to make people better speakers, enjoy the Twitter experience, build real connections. Like that's been the value of this year. And 2020 has certainly sucked. Don't get me wrong. Like I had COVID too. So I get it. But it's also been one of these really magical years where you meet incredible people like yourself, Ari, and so many others on the Twitter world. Well, Robbie, thanks again for joining us. And until next time, everyone. Thanks so much, Ari. I loved it. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, consider giving us five stars on iTunes. If you're listening to us on YouTube, consider hitting the like button and commenting on what you enjoyed. I'd really appreciate it.